Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop, Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Waldy, otherwise known as Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, and I'm a poor, pitiful little thing. It wasn't until I was 16 that I could actually spell Valdemar Janusztak, so I've always needed help and support in my life. Instead, I've ended up doing this podcast with Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, the hard man of art history. Forget the craze, forget Capone, forget Gérard Depardieu in Le Valseurs. If you're looking for a hard nut, someone who could drive a tractor through the fortress of art, Bendy's your man. Oh, Bendy, how did you get so manly? I'm very not manly today, actually, because I've got a cold, Valdi. So I've got, uh, I've got what we call man flu. If I'm more than usually irritable, that'll be why. And uh, just to brace poor producer tear, you may have to edit out quite a lot of sneezes and snuffles as we go along. Oh, eh? see, I, I thought you'd been working out because you're wearing so many layers or something up there to keep warm. I mean, you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger up there. Boy, I mean, you're so muscled. You are ripped. Your internet connection is doing terrible things to your Zoom video quality today, Valdi. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, as always, Bendy, to get your mind off the cold, uh, there's tons coming up, and there always is on this podcast. Um, we've got an interview with Britain's finest land artist, the wonderful Andy Goldsworthy, so that's in a minute. And we're also hoping to see what happens to that big Beeple artwork that's on sale right now at Christie's. Beeple's a graphic artist. We did him last week on this podcast his work goes for ridiculous amounts of money, and he might be going for even more in a couple of minutes. Is that right, Bendy? Yes. When we last checked in with this timed online auction at Christie's in New York, Waldy, uh, the bid was a $3.5 million, which you and I thought was quite ridiculously high for a work of this digital art. The bidding is closing in six minutes and six seconds. I'm reading oh. this off the website live. Right. Would you like me to tell you what the level it is now? So hang on, three and a half million, that was far, far, far too much. Uh, uh, eight million. 24.75 million dollars. You're joking. Nope. For a bunch of digital comic art. It's still going that, up too. As I look at it, it's going up. Indeed, the world really has gone crazy. You with your Churchill slippers. <laughs> Honestly, well, uh, keep an eye on that. We will hopefully let listeners know what that goes for. Uh, and don't forget, listeners, by the way, that everything we talk about, all the information, all the pictures, even the dreaded people, it's all there for you on the podcast pages of zczfilms.com. So do have a look. Uh, okay. But however busy this podcast gets, there's one thing we won't forget today, Bendy. We can't forget because... It's Mother's Day. And if you can't celebrate the mums of the world, what can you celebrate? So today we're doing a special edition of the most progressive awards in the arts calendar. You know what they are. The world knows what they are. The Ah, they don't get more prestigious than the Waldy and Bendy Awards, where Bendor and I dispense with common sense and the natural order of things and casually pick the artworks that we think best tackle whatever it is we're gibbering about that week. And today, we're gibbering about the most important people in the world, the people who brought us here, the people out of whom we popped, our mums. So happy Mother's Day, to all you beautiful mothers out there, thank you from all your beautiful offspring. Uh, Bendy, we've got a short list of great art about mums from which we'll choose a winner. And I suppose it has to start with the most famous of all mothers in art, uh, the one everybody knows about, Whistler's mother. Indeed, although perhaps I should say, I'd like to say two things. First of all, happy Mother's Day to my mum. She's a great fan of the show. Um, and secondly, um, this is another of your shortlists that you've drawn up, Wendy, <laughs> and, and you allowed me to, to get one entry in. But I'm quite pleased to tell the listeners that this week they will be spared our weekly argument about whether Picasso is any good uh, because I managed to elbow Picasso off with my entry. We'll come to that entry later on. But You, you, you did. You shafted Picasso. <laughs> I can't believe you did that. And, and you insert <laughs> Sir Thomas Lawrence, who, by the way, is always on your shortlist as well, um, in, in his is. place. <laughs> anyway, let, let's get back to what Whistler. is your mother's name? Uh, my mother's name is Gabby. 
Gabby, you have brought the world great joy by producing the lovely Bendor. We thank you for that. Thank you so much for Bendy. I'm not quite sure what Whistler would have made of my mum. I don't think she would have sat still long enough for him to paint her. Um, Whistler's mother, one of the most famous maternal paintings in the world, exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1872, and its formal title, Waldemar, is Arrangement in Grey and Black, Number One. So mm. Whistler didn't intend it to be portrait of Whistler's mother. How about that? Mm. Yeah, he, he he used those names, didn't he? He, he wanted um, his art to be the equivalent of music, didn't he? So he, he gave titles like Nocturne, and, and, an arrangement, a harmony. It was a sort of, uh, it was a pretension, wasn't it, of his? Um, but yes, I don't think it was meant to be, as it were, Whistler's mum. It was meant to be a beautiful arrangement of greys and whites and things, wasn't it? Which it, yeah. indeed it is. So I've always been slightly puzzled as to why this picture has such fame as a maternal picture, because it doesn't actually seem particularly maternal to me. It has a rather formal and Victorian view of motherhood, sort of a dutiful and, and uncomplaining and almost sexless representation of, of a woman. And the, the story is that uh, she was only roped in to sit as his model because the, the model that Whistler was expecting to turn up that day uh, didn't arrive. So that's why she's sitting there rather sort of uncomplainingly. Mm. Isn't there another story as well that the... Um that she started out standing, but because she was an old lady, she couldn't stand for very long. So he just asked her to sit down. So she sat down and that's why she's sitting down in the picture. I think that is true. That is another story about it. Yeah. Of course, this is a painting uh, made famous by Mr. Bean and his famous scene in the Mr. Bean film when he goes to the Getty and tries his hand at art restoration with um, almost as much success as when I tried it. <laughs> now, why does that remind me of you immediately? Mr. Bean and you. Do you know, I've never made the connection, the extraordinarily <laughs> accurate connection, till you just pointed it out here. Yeah. Um, Whistler was a funny guy, though, wasn't he? I mean, he was just a curious presence in art, I find. He doesn't seem to fit anywhere properly. Um, he, he's not quite a realist. He's not quite an impressionist. He's not quite fully American. He's not quite French, although he studied in France. He's certainly not English, although he came and lived most of his life here. So he's a sort of in-betweeny artist. Um, but he likes these glowing grey-black harmony types of picture. And um, it, it is extraordinary that this is the one, I mean, this is the most famous painting of a mother in art, isn't it? It's extraordinary that this is the one that should have done it because it's not, as you said, you know, it's not giving of maternal love. It's rather strict and austere. I mean, this is a sort of mum who'd, who'd spank your bottom and stick you in the corner, isn't it? Um, so I yeah. wonder what that tells us about about the attitude of people looking at it. And I wonder what she would have made of what I am just looking at on my screen. I'm keeping an eye for listeners and you on the Christie's auction of Beeple's artwork. Mm. Uh, when I left you out, the, the bid was something like, I think, $24 million. It went up in the last three minutes to 27 million. And then just as the bid was about to close, it's been extended again and it went up, I'm not joking, to no. 50.75 million dollars. No. Yeah, it's just got, it's, <laughs> that it's is doubled in a minute. So somebody put in the most absurd bid. Is that the final bid then for this dreadful piece of, of cartoon nonsense? That bid extended the bidding to another minute. It's now going down. Oh, Christ. 60 million, 60.2 million. No. Six seconds, five seconds, four, three, two, one. Closed. Ugh. That is the most absolutely... I'm in shock. <laughs> Honestly, I'm in shock. People have lost control of their brains. 60 million, dollars know. That's and it. this is for something that basically anybody can look at anywhere in the world because it's graphic art that could be eminently reproduced. Any one of those images in this thing, and there's it's basically 5,000 images that he's produced over 5,000 days, but they're all, as it were, slammed together into one one thing. Yeah. But anybody can look at any of those individual Im images anytime. You can look at it now. I can look at them now. But some idiot out there has got, as it were, the key that says, I own this. So... Yeah. It can't actually hang it in his house because everybody can hang it in their house. We can all own it, but he, he can say, I own it. And for that, you know, for that dubious pleasure, I can't believe you're telling me that some idiot somewhere has spent $60 million. That's, well, that's... They, spent, they spent more than $60 million because we must now add on um, Christie's uh, buyer's premium. So that'll, it'll probably be near a $70 million, I think. So that assistant. takes it into the top 10 artworks of all time. That's uh, a little bit less than the Botticelli we featured on the podcast yeah. a few weeks ago. 
that is comfortably above auction records for all sorts of major name artists. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, anybody really, because they haven't come up recently. More than two Madonna the Pinks by Raphael. Yeah, it's more than any Rubens. It's more than any Michelangelo, because no Michelangelo has come up. Um, it's more than Van Gogh. Um, it's more than anybody. And it's Beeple, this guy called Mike Winkleman, who sits there in South Carolina, you know, playing with computer graphics and putting monsters and androids into his pictures. I mean, and they say the world is is being infantilized, Bendy. Where did they possibly get that opinion from? <laughs> I think um, it, it last week we had a row about whether a Churchill painting was worth $12 million. Well, and now that's the beginning to look a little bit like a bargain, isn't it? Well, it isn't because it's part of the same process. But I mean, it, it is a lesser sin than, than, than this one. You know, it's, it's a lesser sin. Difference. But actually, when you say it's part of the same process, I think there's an important distinction to draw here. Um, because um, as much as I do, albeit reluctantly, uh, defend the price of the Churchill painting, because that is the price at that particular moment, um, I, it seems to me, and I must be careful legally with what I say here, that when we're dealing with brand new art by artists alive now, the market is much more vulnerable to certain types of manipulation. Because what this process is about is about setting in inverted commas, the value of what people's work is worth. Now, if you hold a number of people JPEGs or whatever this is, um, then it's in your interest, isn't it, for the most um, famous one, the most sort of current uh, one on the market, to fetch a really high price, isn't it? So mm. in a way, you never really know what's going on. When the bidding process is as opaque as this, we can't really be sure whether all the actors involved are acting in good faith. That's not to say that anybody involved in this particular case is not acting in good faith, but you but, can but see it what, what it doesn't, what it doesn't, I mean, I'm sure you're right, but what it doesn't stop is the fact that some idiot has just laid out $60 million plus whatever it's going to be another 10 million on top for, for the bits and pieces um, for a, a bunch of, of, of digital doodles, you know, um, it's a collapse of values. I mean, it, it genuinely is. And what kind of a world do we live in where we where we can't agree to offer the nurses who've been saving us all a 1% pay rise, you know, a, de a desultory 1% pay rise, uh, and then some somebody comes along and, and throws 60 million quid at a, an artwork that all of us can have hanging up on our television screens because everybody can have it anyway. I mean, yeah. it's a collapse of values, Bendor. It, it truly is. I said last week, Valdi, that nothing brings out anybody's inner communist than the price of art. And this week, Valdi, I am there on the barricades with you, <laughs> waving my red flag, wearing my Jeremy Corbyn cap. Uh, onwards, oh. onwards. Onwards, <laughs> Bendor. Well, listen, let, I'll tell you what we'll do, because we need some, after that awful news about this ridiculous situation, we need something beautiful and bountiful and wholesome in our lives. Let's go back to our mums. Um, <laughs> let's go straight away to one of the most beautiful images ever made, as far as I'm concerned. And it's it's a proper mother this time. And it was painted by uh, Paula Modersen Becker, who's a German expressionist artist with an interesting and, and sad life. Um, picture was painted in, in 1906, um, and it's called Reclining Mother and Child. And it is, it's so lovely. It's a mum uh, lying on a bed, horizontal, quite blankly pictured. So it's not really realist. It's It's a bit more symbolist than that. And there's a baby sucking at her breast, covered by her arm, so you, it's sort of cuddled up. And it's a snug little picture. You know, it's... Bendy, you know, we, we both... I think we're both happy and proud to have children, and, and, and I have two daughters. And, you know, when you're there and at their birth and when, when they're little babies, it's also biological, isn't it, the whole thing? I mean, it, it's not about the, the romance and the poetry. It's about this kind of gorgeous smelly biology of it all and this picture for me has really really got that I mean they're just sort of cuddled up in this ball on the bed I think it's just wonderful delightful picture yes and the most precious part of that moment for me is the the union uh, the bond between mother and daughter and as fathers in the in the delivery room you're sort of hopping around not really knowing what to do with yourself and sort of slightly punch drunk on the emotion and and love of it all and but but no matter how much as a father I think you love your child, you love your, your wife or partner at that moment, uh, nothing can really beat that particular bond between mother and child at that particular moment, which which Paula Modersen-Becker has captured so beautifully in this painting. 
Um, it's a it's a lovely lovely image, and of course, uh, it was something that she experienced herself, but uh, tragically for such a short period. Mm. A, a tragic, tragic life. This was painted in 1906. She was 30 when she painted this. A year later, she had her own baby. She'd been dreaming of having a baby after she was 30, um, and unfortunately died a few days, I think it's about 18 days after the childbirth. She had a baby called Matilda. But um, she had a pulmonary embolism. You know, I've had a pulmonary embolism. I didn't die. I just had an illness from it. But she had one, as, as sometimes in those days pregnant women did, um, sort of thrombosis, a deep vein thrombosis, and um, it, 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 the blood vessel clotted and the blood went up and she died. Tragic, absolutely tragic. You see, she was so important. She, she painted the first nude self-portrait by a woman in art. And she brought these feminine values to art that we now perhaps are more familiar with, but at the time were really revolutionary. So, you know, most of the mothers and children in art before this picture was painted are, you know, things like the Madonna and child. It's a mother sitting or standing with holding the baby, cradling. This idea of just showing it lying on the bed like this, this more natural thing. You know, that's a woman's viewpoint and the projection of a woman's viewpoint. It was revolutionary in art at the time. And so there's this quiet, beautiful picture changed so much. And, and Paula Modison Becker, you know, who's, who's one of the great heroines of, of 20th century art, she changed so much in this short but and sad, but but also wonderfully gifted life. Mm. Good. Well, thanks for bringing it to my attention. I had not yet studied it before. Lovely picture. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to your contribution, uh, <laughs> Bendy. Uh, so you you elbowed out my Picasso, and you you put in instead this picture by your hero, Sir Thomas Lawrence. Um, it uh, it's not much of it. What there is is pretty stern. T tell me about it. Well, Wally, I'm a sucker for unfinished paintings, as I think I might have mentioned before. And this is an unfinished head study by Sir Thomas Lawrence of his mother, who was called Lucy. It painted in 1797. She died very shortly after it. In fact, she was ill when he painted this, so she's sort of on her deathbed. And all we see on the on the bare white primed canvas is uh, her head. She's wearing a white bonnet, and she's she's face onto us, but she's looking away. And there's a sort of slight uh, sense of disapproval, I think, in her in her manner. But what is unmistakable is Lawrence's uh, love for his mother, because he's he studied her face so immaculately and painted it, I think, so beautifully. And uh, it's really quite an extraordinary bond they had. She's quite a figure. Uh, she married uh, Thomas Lawrence Sr. against the wishes of her family. Uh, her father was a priest, a sort of middling family, uh, and she was cut off because they didn't approve of Thomas Lawrence's dad. Now, they went on to have uh, 16 children, of whom younger Thomas Lawrence, our artist, was uh, the youngest surviving one, the 14th. Uh, surviving child. And they had a really extraordinary and tough childhood and family life because uh, Thomas Sr. was a sort of bankrupt publican. Um, and in the end, the whole family had to rely on the, the extraordinary prodigious gifts of uh, Thomas Younger, who was sort of hailed as this Mozart of art and would be wheeled out to portrait likenesses from the age of, I think, six. And this picture was captured, as I say, at the end of um, Lucy Lawrence's life, um, and it became a family heirloom. And I, the, the other great thing about it is it's in marvellous condition. And it's just such a, a wonderful, close and tangible connection, a timeless connection, because it's unfinished, of, of Lawrence's love for his mother. Hmm. Yes, um, it is lovely. Uh, do you know what? Uh, I, I don't know a lot about, about Lawrence, and I certainly know nothing about his mother. But when I first saw this, I, th I thought she looked a bit stern. Um, <laughs> And she struck me as one of those rather frightening mothers you see in the Victorian age um, who wouldn't let their son do anything, really, kept them all on a tight leash, a bit like Whistler's mother, who was a bit like that, you know, when she came over to London and grabbed control of him. She's another one who doesn't look too motherly to me. Uh, but yes, of course, I mean, where, where I have to admit that you've really persuaded me is, is, is in giving due value to, to Lawrence's talent you know the, the fingers what, what what he could do the skills the the the, the old-fashioned ability just to wield the paintbrush yes all of that is there what you get with these unfinished pictures is you get these sort of moment in the middle where it's all finished and it's just the face and it's just this i think rather stern face looking out with a very meaningful stare and then the bonnet suggested around and her shoulders and it 
it sort of makes the face unmissable, doesn't it? <laughs> because it's unfinished. Yeah. It's yeah. like the sun in the sky or the moon at night. You know, right in the middle, there's a sort of circle of something, and you can't take your eyes off it. It is a it is a wonderful thing. I, um, and um, yeah, it's it's among the Lawrences that you've shown me, and God knows there's been a lot of them. It's among <laughs> the ones um, I think I I feel best about. <laughs> Well, I agree with you. She does it rather stern, but I, I think, I think that's sort of Lawrence's point of her is that he was this poor, benighted woman who had to deal with fourteen kids and a complete reprobate husband, uh, yet somehow managed to keep the show on the road and produce one of the greatest British artists who ever lived. Um, who decided just weeks before she died to uh, record her on canvas for our um, enjoyment in posterity. Hmm. Well, indeed. And talking of posterity, so we're going to move on quickly to, um, I mean, perhaps among the most famous mothers around at the moment, because it's uh, it's a sculpture in this case that uh, gets shown a lot. Um, I remember seeing it in particular at the opening of Tate Modern in the year 2000, when it was up in the middle of the gallery, um, straddling the that kind of bridge they've got that goes between one side and the other. And it's by Louise Bourgeois. It's called Mama, French for mother, and actually features a giant spider, this rather spooky thing that, that is massive. I mean, it's a huge sculpture, the size of a small house. Basically, all you can do is walk under it, and this thing looms over you and frightens you. And it's obviously Louise Bourgeois' view of maternity. I mean, we know from her writings that this, that she had a stern family life and, and had complicated views about her mum. And so I suppose what this introduces to the story is this idea that, you know, some mums can perhaps be domineering and huge and um, terrifying. And although I don't like to mention it on Mother's Day, for the sake of fairness, I suppose we need to, to admit to that. And um, certainly, if it is even half true, it doesn't half get caught by this extraordinary work by Louise Bourgeois. Yes, I I'm, I don't really know what to make of this. I I think I've seen it. I can't remember. But I, I struggle to like it as much as you, as you can tell. And I, I think I struggle to see it as a sort of maternal thing. I, I did. I spent some time looking it up and trying to get to grips with it. Um, I was quite interested by a little bit of text on the Tate website. Um, you've done a good job, actually, of describing it but I just wanted to contrast your good description of the sculpture with this little bit of text on the website. Um, it begins, the title Memon translates as mummy, the appellation a child uses for its mother. Like the title Filette, meaning little girl, that Bourgeois gave to a larger plaster and latex penis that hangs from a wire, the title Memon enhances dynamic contradictions at the heart of the sculpture. So, I think you've explained what the dynamic contradictions are. Is that is that what you mean by a sort of tough and domineering mother? Well, I certainly don't mean anything to do with suspended penises, if that's, <laughs> if that's your question. Of course, I, Bourgeois' work, for, for a start, I know she was around in the, in the 20th century, and I know that is way, way, way past law era. So we're going, we're going way forward from where you finish, Bendy. I'm aware of that. But Louise Bourgeois is a great, I suppose... The easiest way to describe her is as a, probably as a surrealist. I mean, that's the sort of thing she was. She brought these emotional and intellectual ideas to art that sometimes are unknowable. Um, and there is this strange primitive language that she uses. A lot of stuff refers back either to her childhood and to her psychological memories of the moods and atmospheres of her childhood. Um, and there is quite a lot of sex in her art, but it's all in it's, none of it's romantic or lovely or or indeed in, you know enticing or arousing. It's all a little bit grubby and and, and dark. And and you know, I've interviewed her a couple of times when she was alive, and she's absolutely she was an absolutely wonderful woman. Died just short of a hundred. Absolutely stunning woman. Um, and she, you know, she's she's actually the the person who more than anybody else made us look again at older women in art. You know, people who've been discarded, people who've been forgotten, people whose careers were slipped down the back of the sofa or, or were just ignored. You know, Louise Bourgeois was all those things. And then she came back triumphantly towards the end of her life and everybody sat up and took notice because here suddenly was this extraordinary older woman who made art that was as brave as any young girl's art. You know, and it, it broke all the rules. It changed everything. And this particular piece, I mean... I, 
if you saw it, I just know you'd be you'd be impressed by it, Bendy. I mean, this is better than any of your tractors. It's bigger than your barn. It, it's just a, a powerful thing that gets over you. Now, as to its relationship to the idea of motherhood, well, it as I said, I think I think the paradox here is that it it treats motherhood as something. You know, the, the the mother spider sits at the center of the web and controls things. And I think it's 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 a projection of, of Bourgeois' own memories of her past, of her own mother. It's not particularly um, cuddly, of course, but it doesn't stop it being a really effective work of art. You know, I think it's, it's one of the great sculptures of, of recent times. Well, Waldi, you've demonstrated why I'm in such awe of you and why, uh, for me, doing this podcast is frankly just a sort of learning session because I, I sit at your feet and <laughs> and learn how you do it. Because you've just explained, you, you've just explained that, you know, that sculpture so well and made it so appealing. And you're, you're right, I can't have seen it because I must have been struck by it if I'd seen it. It's such a huge thing. But it, it just disappoints me that for people trying to get to grips with a lot of modern contemporary art, uh, you first have to wade through that kind of barrier of bollocks, uh, which, like that text that I just read out. And, and that, <laughs> for someone who's not, you know, I'm not that good with words and, and text on pages, I find that just such a sort of off-putting veil that's drawn over all this stuff. And, and um, frankly, I think all these people should stop writing and you should just be in charge of writing it all. <laughs> <You> and then... <laughs> Whatever I'm paying you, which I believe is nothing, Bendor, um, I'm going to have to put it up a hundred times. I mean, you are worth your weight in gold as a, as a, as a walking advertiser. That's so sweet of you to say that. Listen, I think most people want to talk about art straightforwardly, and but there are a certain branch of art professionals who don't do that. They're a disgrace to the profession and none of us should listen to them. But I, I found in my experience uh, that people who don't know what to say try and make it sound really long and pretentious but they don't really know what they're getting at. But that doesn't uh, in any way impinge on what we do here, Bendy, because we are now coming on to something really tangible and I think pretty delightful. Uh, and that is the fifth of our mums in art. And it is uh, a painting by uh, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who was a French sort of late Rococo painter, um, great woman artist again. Uh, all the new feminist art histories have her in. She had a child called Julie, beautiful little daughter, painted her several times. A couple of the pictures were quite controversial, but for me, this is the, the loveliest of them. Um, and it's a very straightforward thing. It's a mum. She's in one of those beautiful pseudo-Greek dresses that the Rococo era wore, neoclassical dress. She's hugging her child. The child's got his hands around her neck. She's beautiful. The baby's beautiful. And they're sort of looking out at us. And it's it's sweet and adorable. And, and it just shows how that kind of late Rococo, early neoclassical period, how it could just tug your heartstrings in a lovely way. Yes, and it, and, and what a contrast we've drawn uh, between um, motherhood as represented in art by female artists and motherhood as represented by male artists. This one um, has has everything, isn't it? It's so full of affection because the daughter and the child are, are so uh, tightly hugging each other and they're smiling, they're happy, and that's really unusual. In fact, uh, this is the second uh, self-portrait that Vigée Lebrun painted with her daughter, Julie. Uh, this one was painted in 1789, and we'll come on to the significance of that date in a moment, I think. But the first one was in 1787. And when it was exhibited at the Salon, it was uh, rather controversial. And I've got here a little snippet of text from a critic at the time who wrote, an affectation which artists, art lovers, and persons of taste have been united in condemning in this picture, and which finds no precedent among the ancients, is that in smiling, Vigée Lebrun shows her teeth. So in the first self-portrait, that the one I just read out the description of, Vigée Lebrun herself was smiling, showing her teeth, but her daughter, Julie, wasn't. And I think it's really interesting that in this mm. second one, both mother and daughter are smiling and showing their teeth. Mm. This is a big two fingers to the French art mm. uh, critics of the time. It's very true, isn't it? I mean, Yes, art is a bit like album covers. You know, like whenever you see a, a photograph of a band on an album cover, they're always deliberately scowling. There's that look, <laughs> isn't there? They're trying to be tough while they hang off the barbed wire. And the same with art. It, it, people don't want to see to seem jolly in a, in a lot of art. Uh, so yes, I mean it's wonderful that that they're smiling here. Uh, and why wouldn't they? It's as if the the wonders of of motherhood, you know, have have broken through those barriers. And and Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, who, let's face it painted an awful lot of average pictures and, and quite a few bad ones. The idea of motherhood, the experience of motherhood, prompted her in this instance to do something absolutely gorgeous. It's just a lovely, lovely painting. And all her 
paintings of herself with her children are wonderful, I think, and deserve to be looked at really properly on this great day of ours. Yeah, but I think we should, I just want to come back quickly to the date, 1789, because of course that is the date of the beginning of the French Revolution. Yeah. And I think we can probably see in the in the the tightness with which Virginie Lebrun is holding her daughter here, some anxiety as to what was ahead, because uh, things have been getting extremely difficult for some time. Virginie Lebrun, as a sort of uh, effectively court painter to Marie Antoinette, was often a target of the revolutionary ardor. Um, uh, against her, and she was she was subject to all sorts of insults and sort of attacks. And uh, in fact, in seventeen eighty nine, she was so um, disturbed by it all, she stopped eating. Um, and I think that we can't we can't necessarily see that in this painting, but it's it's all underpinning that. And of course, uh, very soon after this was painted, uh, she was forced uh, to flee France herself, and she got out just in the nick of time. Mm, that's right, yeah. Marie Antoinette, those are the best images of Marie Antoinette. And Vigée Lebrage painted her, what, 20, 30 times? There's, yeah. there's loads of them. Yeah, I mean, there were two people who obviously got on with each other. Marie Antoinette, another one who's been completely, I think, traduced by history. I'm not saying she was blameless, far from it. But I mean, the, the stories that are told about her and the way that, the way that she was treated is also disgraceful. Um, and she comes out well, I think, in, in Vijay Lebrun's pictures. And it's, it's going back to that thing we, we mentioned with Modus and Becker. It, it's the arrival of a feminine viewpoint in art, Bendor. You know, women, for whatever reasons, weren't allowed to make much art and had no opportunity to make much art uh, before the 20th century. And in those eras, when you get, for whatever sort of combination of circumstances, when you get a woman picking up the brushes, you get this new stuff coming through. You know, you yeah. get a new viewpoint, a new voice in art. Uh, and, and for Vigée Lebrun, this, this delicacy of the relationship that she paints between herself and her daughter, that she can paint that because she's, she's, she knows it from inside, from a different angle from the men who watch from the other side. Uh, and, and she expresses it. And it's, it's wonderful that women were allowed finally to begin enriching art in the great way that it did. Good. That's the shortlist. Um, we need to write down our scores now for each picture, Bendy, to write down what we, what we have for it. Um, and then Taya, who's got a mathematical wizard, she's got a, a brain like an abracadabra machine. Um, <laughs> she's going to add all that up, and then she's going to tell us, I think, what the results are, who are the winners and losers in our top five of the best pictures of motherhood. Taya. Well, I, I don't have a big brain, but I do have a big calculator, so <laughs> that, that does help. Um, at the bottom, with 15 points, uh, is the Thomas Lawrence picture. Oh. oh, what a shame. I wonder who voted low for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next, we have Louise Bourgeois with the what? spider. Fourth place for Louise Bourgeois. Outrageous. Straight back at you, Weldy. <laughs> Yes, go on. Uh, and then we have Whistler with uh, 18 points. Okay, that's about right, yeah. And then, I'm sorry to say, Valdi, but we do have a tied first place again oh. with um, Lebrun and the Modest and Becker, both at 25 points. So Vijay Lebrun and, pa and Paula Modest and Becker both at the top. Yes. Hey, come on, that's not bad, actually, is it, Bendy? We can live with a double winner, can't we? That's a very good outcome. Yeah, I'm very pleased about that. Well, there we are. The official winner of the Wendy for the best paintings about motherhood uh, that we've been able to find is da 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 da, -da Both Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and Paula Modison Becker. Hurrah! Hurrah. So, mothers of the world, we salute you. Uh, thank you for bringing us all into being... Uh, but mums, as you know, there's never enough time to get it all done. So I'm afraid we're going to wave goodbye to you now. Uh, and we're going to crack on to another beautiful world, somewhere poetic, somewhere delicate, but also, as we're about to find out, somewhere savage and full of problems. The Interview so, the interview this week. Uh, Bendy, it's with someone really special, I think. Uh, basically, he's Britain's best land artist uh, who makes stuff in nature and about nature. Uh, I've done a couple of things with him and, and really enjoyed doing them. So, uh, Andy Goldsworthy, I mean, you like him. He's great, right? Yes, I'm a big fan. I'm looking forward to hearing, hearing what it sounds like, what he has to say. 
indeed. So he's been in lockdown like everyone else, but I managed to track him down in his croft up north, uh, and I persuaded him to take off his wellies and talk to me. Okay, Andy, it's really nice to see you. It's been a while. Um, the last time I came up, we made an artwork together somewhere in, in your garden or down at the bottom of the field. Well, it wasn't in my garden. It was in a farmer's field two fields away. Uh, so it was about what, five, ten minute walk from where I live. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it was incredibly cold. And I bet it's cold up there a lot, isn't it? Because you're... It can be, yeah. Yeah, but I, I love the cold. I love working in the cold and... Um, look forward to it and miss it when it goes you know it leaves me often high and dry with lots of works i could have made if only the freezing temperatures remained for a little bit longer <laughs> well we'll come to that in a minute about the art because you made artworks with ice and with icicles and stuff like that let's get a little bit of geography done here so you're basically uh, on the borders of scotland and england now aren't you and you base there most of the time and you make a lot of artworks in and around your house, is that about right? Yeah, it's in the southwest of Scotland. I've lived here since '86, and uh, my studio is basically what you can see behind me. It's, it's anywhere out there, and I set off each day going wherever and making. Usually, it's the weather that is the biggest determining factor of what I will make. Well, most people who know your work will know it through your books. You're tremendously successful. They're very beautiful books of your photographs. Now, those books are full of evidence of what you've been up to out there in nature. I mean, they're amazing things. I mean, there can be, you've used like leaves of a certain colour to create perfect circles around a tree or the ice bits that you make. You know, you sort of create a geometry of ice in the middle of the lake. And we all know that they can only be there for a fraction of a minute or something sometimes. You know, if you hadn't taken that photo, these things would never have existed. That, that's what people... Well, it's, that sort of implies that they're being made for the photograph and to, then I can make a book out of them. It's all no, about, no, no, no. Yeah, but the photograph is amazing. It's amazing the way that once the work is finished, I very rarely photograph whilst the work is being done. And then the camera comes out. And that becomes a way of looking at the work, of understanding the work, of seeing it and living with it. I will make things that I will spend hours returning to and photographing them as they change or they melt or whatever. So that's a very important part of the way of, of understanding. And then when you mentioned about the geometry, I actually very rarely make circles perfect circles but everybody thinks i do you know it's like you make one and that's it it's so fixed in people's minds and um i'm very cautious of circles you know very very cautious and it's just re-emerged i probably made my first circle perfect circle probably ever i don't think i've ever made a perfect circle but i did recently where on the barrel of uh, a water barrel in, in near one of the buildings the ice formed on it and I, I lifted it up and put it in a tree. And I've been doing all these works about the rising sun and the, the, that incredible circle that is the sun, this undeniable, the powerful circle. And I had this kind of sun and moon in my hand that I put in the tree. So on that particular instance, it really resonated with what I was doing, but I probably will never show that work because if I let that one out, Everybody think I made bloody circles all the time. <laughs> well, listen, I hate to say this, but you made a circle with me. Because when I came up to see you, um, we made a fantastic piece. There's a little film of it on YouTube, which I recommend everybody should look at. Um, and what you did was you went down to a stream at, um, at the bottom of your field or a bottom of one of the fields. And you stuck lots of bits of wood into a rushing waterfall, as it were. Uh, and created what looked like a suspended ball or circle of wood in the middle of a waterfall. Yeah. Well, I would call it more of a ball or a boulder rather than a circle, you know. But it was round. It, it was this, yeah, no, it was round. It was amazing. And had I, had you not been there, you'd probably thought I'd photoshopped it onto the waterfall. It was this incredible sort of thing that was going on with the movement of the water and this, this bowl of, the boulder of branches there. No, that was great. That was a bit of a risk, wasn't it? The chances of me succeeding that day. You there with a the film crew. Yeah. <laughs> Then we have the evidence. But that's the thing, isn't it? The, the photography and the films and the videos that you, you seem to be making now, 
they are, as it were, proof of something that otherwise, I guess, a lot of people, I mean, how will anybody know what you're up to without all that stuff? Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, I make, I do the projects which people do see, the actual physical works. Um, there's a big project in uh, North Yorkshire called Hanging Stones that I'm working on now. In fact, that's the only work that I made during lockdown. Oh, not, not lockdown, but during this year, during the period when it wasn't lockdown, I made that work. And people can go and see those. And that's very important. Uh, I think the social nature of the landscape is an incredibly important part of what I do. You know, that I don't work on my own um, patch of ground. I work on generally other people's fields, other farmers. And that really makes you aware of the, as I said, the social nature of the landscape. And anybody can come across my work. In fact, I was making the, uh, during the coal period recently, I uh, was uh, collecting icicles that have formed on the, the waterfall near near where I live, and uh, carried them, and froze them to a, the top of a farm gate. So there's all these icicles on top of the gate. <laughs> and, uh, someone came by and found me, saw me, and then brought other people out to come and see me. And then it all went around the village that I'd been making this work on ice and how great it looked. And but uh, it all fell off before the farmer could come along. <laughs> You're kind of a rural Banksy, aren't you? A rural Banksy who just makes stuff and, and people come across it when they're not expecting it. Except yours are in nature, whereas Banksy's stuff is in cities. Yeah, well, I guess and there is an element of that. And I think there is this um, taking a risk too and going into places you're not allowed not supposed to be, uh, which is you know most of the places I work, and having to explain yourself if someone comes across and finds you, and and uh, you know that's how how it is. I don't enjoy that. I mean, these things I make, I guess, also like Banksy, are deeply personal acts in very public places. You know. So you've been making these pieces in your um, direct territory, as it were, in and around your house, which we've talked about. But you also you've made some pieces elsewhere. You mentioned the, the, the Hanging Stones, is that right? Which is, uh, can you describe that to us? It's a valley in North Yorkshire, near Rosedale. It's called Northdale. And it's a, um, I'm rebuilding 10 houses, which are in various states of dereliction and and turning them into artworks so the the walk is an artwork it's a six mile walk uh, you'll get you can get a key to enter the houses and um, this will be my major work Valdemar. this is the the one uh, and this project has had huge problems just getting permissions from the national park planning department but i still haven't got the final permission, you know, and if this one doesn't happen, I, you know, I know what it's like for things to go wrong. I have things falling down, things not working out and I move on, but this one will be really, really difficult. It means so much to me. And I'm at, I'm 65 now. I've got all these years of experience. I'm still physically able to make the works myself. I have this project. I have the funding. I have the support and the planning department. <laughs> Welcome to Britain. <laughs> so anyway, what, can you just tell us a little bit more about, about the actual project, um, what, what people will see or what you've done? The project didn't begin as this overall idea. It started with being asked to make a work for the, for the Valley. And I, 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 I found an old house that I liked. And that dialogue with the, the buildings is, is, is what generates the work and uh, for me the place is a tough gritty multifaceted somewhat raw difficult it's north yorkshire and the national park keep talking about being this tranquil landscape which really you know i don't think it is and i think the whole idea about people thinking of me being this sort of airy fairy person that floats around the landscape and does a nice circle with leaves and then floats off and does another one. It's just like really annoying. <laughs> Nature for me is tough and challenging and brutal and absolutely awe-inspiringly beautiful and makes sense of an often senseless world, you know. It's just extraordinary. It's like you've got this energy and life and 
it's pretty intense. When you talk about these, these hanging rocks, what I'm imagining, and tell me if I'm wrong here, is you turn up and you go on this six-mile walk through a beautiful and rough part of Yorkshire, and every now and then you encounter a house, which has presumably been there already, but you've now gone into those houses or ruined houses, and you've done different things in each one. So it's a kind of art trail, a sort of journey from house to house, and in each house is a different experience. That's how I'm kind of reading it and imagining it. Yeah, kind of. It's obviously much more interesting than that. <laughs> <laughs> the title for the project, Hanging Stones, I mean, it, it could be, Hanging Stones could describe many works that I've made, you know, Balanced a Rock or the Precariousness or whatever. It's actually the name of the lane that runs up the valley. I mean, can you believe it? Mm. Hanging Stone Lane. And one of the houses is called Hanging Stone House. Now, imagine this, Valdemar, right? So this is a, a two-story building, old building. The floor had completely collapsed. There were stairs leading up one side gable end of the building that you, was a door that leads into the upper floor. So it's a two-floor building divided by this floor. I mean, so there's two doors. There's a quarry just above, about 100, 150 yards above the building where they used to quarry. And there's big stones in this quarry. Maybe the hanging stone got its name because it was a stone that hung up for a while that was precarious. Who knows? I mean, or maybe they just hung people there. It's a little edgy, and I like, I like that. So I rebuilt the house, renovated the whole house, and it now has a floor that divides the building. And in that floor is suspended an 11-ton stone that we brought down from the quarry. Well, you walk into a house, uh, which was a ruined house, and you've rebuilt the whole house. And as you walk in, you look up or around or in front of you, and there is an 11-ton rock that's about to fall on your head. Is that In that particular building. And they're not, uh, yeah, what I like is that houses are usually places of sanctuary and comfort. Well, I turn that right on its head. It's so inside out that the outside is inside. You know, it's rawer inside than out. And they're very kind of, as I say, a little threatening. They're not going to be pretty circles in, in these mm. buildings. Uh, you know, they're going to be, and, they're, 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 and like I say, so they're not just containers for an object. They are the work. The whole thing is the work. And the contrast between the walk and the space and then this intense interior space where it's a bit like with the hanging so it's like stepping into a, a stall with an elephant or a bull you know you're suddenly oh you know it's a bit scary yeah so the savageness or the savagery of nature which we usually expect to be on the outside and then the house is the place you shelter from it you're sort of reversing that on this walk and you're putting people into situations where they can feel some of the potency or darkness or power of, of Andy Goldsworthy's attitude to nature. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Is that due to be ready soon? And Will anybody be able to go on it? You can do it now. Well, once it's closed at the moment because of the, the situation, but it has been open on a very kind of low key because we're trying to... Uh, it's limited to uh, something like six groups a day. You can get the key... And you can go on the walk, and I will be—I'll uh, be working there as soon, uh, hopefully. Anyway, you should. Do you want to come yeah. up and have a look? Yeah, no, I can still walk six miles, just about, definitely. Like when we were in Hampstead Heath, you know. Yeah, no, no, I know. You used to call me the human gazelle, didn't you? Did I? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember that. But if you think that's what I called you. There you go, Andy Goldsworthy. Bend or set him right. I am a gazelle, aren't I? I mean, you, you've seen me in action. Come on. Uh, yes, well, we might come on to that, actually. I thought he was a very, <laughs> uh, like all artists, very perceptive of these things. <laughs> what a lovely man. I'm, as I said, I'm a big fan of his stuff. Uh, what a lovely man he is. He sounds like a nice fellow. And I didn't know that he must be a near neighbour of mine. He lives in the Scottish borders. He must be very near to you, I'm sure. If you get in your snowplow and head his way, I mean, <laughs> it can't be that far at all. I think you're sort of under Edinburgh, aren't you? He's sort of under Glasgow, so, so okay. there's the neck of Britain to, to get to traverse. But he's definitely, you're definitely close enough. In Scottish terms, that's close. So, okay. yeah. But I think he does lovely things. And the history of art really is so often about artists drawing inspiration from nature and trying to replicate it in different media, isn't it? Um, mm. Whereas we very rarely see artists travelling in the other direction. 
And I think that's a shame, actually, because I've, I've yet to see, and you've been schooling me in uh, the, the virtues of land art these last few months, I've yet to see, actually, a piece of land art I don't like, a bit of mm. bad land art. It's all good. And I think that's, that's presumably because the people who do it have such reverence for nature and the land that they're trying to mm. make their art. I, I think that's a really good point. Yes, I mean, you're not going to make land art if you hate it. Oh, you <laughs> hate the land. So yeah, that's right, I think. I mean, it's people who have an involvement, a feeling for it. We well, should... He certainly does. Um, yeah. And he's hardcore, you know. I mean, the pieces that I've seen him do and that, you know, he builds entire stone walls, hundreds of feet long, and, yeah. you know, barns with his, with his bare hands. And he just goes out there and does it. And he's a really... Um, physical guy when he when he's making these bits and yet when you see the work itself i mean i mean he's going to hate me for saying this but it's often really delicate and lovely yeah. and it has that poetic moment where everything seems to stop and suddenly there's this, just this wonderful moment of clarity when something that he's done just makes that place feel artistic and beautiful some, some little intrusion of his really works i think he's just a great thing there was a lovely video actually that uh, you mentioned to me and i think you mentioned in the interview there and we'll put a link to it on zzfilms.com uh, but a short film you made of him making a little sculpture out of sticks in a stream it's magic isn't it it's artistic alchemy and it was lovely yeah. to see that that um, wooden sculpture pop out but um, before we eulogize um, andy Godsworthy anymore Wildy, i would like to ask you about your role in that film because it seems to me proof that you can take Weldy out of the city but you can't take the city <laughs> out of Weldy. You, your waterproofs looked suspiciously like sort of PVC and you were wearing these wellies which had the plastic lining still in them. Did, did, did you no. these have a hole in no. it? Not really as you had to take the wrapping off. <laughs> well what happened was, I, I do remember it vividly because I was so damn cold that day, but um <laughs> My, the bottom fell off my wellies. <laughs> I don't know, the sole fell off, so they came apart at the at the sole. You so I, the, the only way to keep my feet dry <laughs> was to insert a plastic bag into the welly, um, and then I couldn't not wear the wellies because it was too cold, and I had to, you know. So uh, yes, I mean the reason why I look like a rag and bone man is down to the poor quality of the Scottish Wellingtons I was wearing. But the, the piece itself was lovely, and um, and I'm rather sad you noticed it. I thought I edited most of the, the views of my bad Wellingtons out of the, uh, out of the film. Um, do you know, the other thing about Andy Goldsworthy, the snobbish British art world has never quite given him his due. You know, he's never had big shows at Tate Modern, Tate Britain. He's never really? been shortlisted for the Turner Prize. You know, the intellectual um, curatorship of Britain holds him in lower regard than we do. And they've been really so short-sighted about that. I mean, people love his work, and rightly so. And it's not as if it's lacking in any rigor or intelligence uh, or any of the things that the curatorship looks for. It's just that people like it. That seems to be what they, they, they take against. And so he's never been properly awarded, you know, properly appreciated and applauded by the great British art world. So, you know, I'm going to applaud him right here. Andy, you're one of the best and don't ever change. Don't stop anything. No, I'm shocked to hear that, actually. And that's really sad news. I agree. Um, he is one of the best. If he was American and spoke in a New York drawl, he'd probably be internationally famous, wouldn't he? But we're, we're still quite snobbish in this country, and a lot of it has to do with whether you sound like me, and I, I think that's wrong. Um, but I was yeah. going to ask you, Andy, mm -hmm. does, does Andy take uh, private commissions? Um, I doubt it. I doubt it. He's, 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 he's artistic enough to, uh, to not want to do things. But he's, he's quite fun to do things with. I mean, if you popped up at his house, I'm sure he'd let you make an artwork and stuff like that. I, mean, mm -hmm. I, did, I, I met him, first of all, he was doing some snowball things on Hampstead Heath. And yeah, we rolled snowballs up and down Hampstead Heath and made these giant atmospheric snow pieces. Great fun, really great fun. And he, you know, he's a missionary when it comes to the beauty of art and the transience of nature and all that. And I'm sure if you went around, if you and your kids went down to his place, I bet you, you could make something with him. Well, I was wondering if when we get you to come and stay up here, when all the lockdowns are over, and uh, part of the reason for doing that is to invite you up here is to furnish you with good Wellington boots and proper tweed country <laughs> outfit well, in a nice flat cap. Uh, but we, we could invite Andy over and perhaps we could make something. But anyway, let's see. Yeah. Oh, and isn't it appalling, the planning thing with his, his magnum opus, the Hanging Rocks? Yeah. I mean, the planning committee, what on earth could 
have possessed them to in any way show anything other than the greed and grabbiness you know go ahead and make this andy you know rather than try and holding him back it sounds like such a wonderful project and a six mile walk with these lovely andy goldsworthy things to see in on the way you know, isn't it dismal that, that planning committees should in any way hold that back? You know, we should start a campaign. The Waldy and Bendy campaign to get Andy Goldsworthy's Hanging Rocks fully finished. You know, we might even have it printed up and have a bit of paper that says it. I do think it's very mumsy behaviour uh, to, to get in the way of art that way. Yeah, I think perhaps it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, is that people don't accept that you can't, by definition, really have bad land artists. And I think people get so worried about any intervention in a sort of quote-unquote scenic spot. And there's this group I came across on um, social media recently up here in Scotland who go on walks in the highlands and places uh, specifically to find uh, cairns or little rings of stone that people have you know, built just for sort of artistic fun to dismantle them because they say that it's an imposition in the landscape. And I, <laughs> I think it's so mean-spirited. And I think, I think that's what Andy's come up against in the, in the planning battle. There's too much of that abroad in our land, um, but we, we should let the artists roam more freely, I say. Absolutely. The Wardy and Bendy are way behind you there, Andy. I mean, fortunately, on this podcast, we don't just have to deal with the grimness of things like planning committees. Uh, we can fly away and find things and do things and achieve things by magic, especially in uh, the section that's coming up next. On the Wall. There you go, Bender, away from the world of planning committees, away from the world of Beeple and his $60 million sales. We get to choose some really great art, unarguably great art, that we want on our walls during the lockdown. So, um, you know, what particular uh, antidote to Beeple have you uh, picked this week? Ah, now I've gone for a picture known as The Man in the Golden Helmet from the Berlin Gemälde Gallery, the Berlin Old Masters Gallery. And this is a picture which for hundreds of years was declared not only a Rembrandt, but perhaps his most famous and best loved Rembrandt. Uh, and when this picture was on display in the Berlin Gemälde Gallery, it, it was sort of front and centre. It was held up like an altarpiece around which the rest of the collection was constructed. So important was this picture deemed. Um, and then in the 1980s, it was uh, downgraded partly by curators at the gallery itself, but also uh, with the encouragement of the um, then newly formed Rembrandt Research Project. And um, there are a number of things that the, the knockers didn't like about it. I should just describe the picture. It's a head and shoulders uh, portrayal of an old man with a grey moustache. He's on a dark background and he's sort of um, positioned obliquely at us. And he's looking more or less directly at us, but but down to the ground in that shy Rembrandtian manner that he sometimes arranges his models in. Um, but on his head is the most luscious um, and uh, beautifully painted a gold helmet, which is, I mean, talk about impasto. You, you could run your fingers over this thing and feel mountain ranges of paint piled up. On top of that is a red and white plume of feathers. And there were, there were a number of things that threw the, the people in the 1980s, the experts in the 1980s, that they declared it can't be by Rembrandt. One of which was that impasto in the gold helmet. They said that it was painted too thickly for Rembrandt himself. Mm. So we're dealing with a, with a period in art history which is fascinating when Rembrandt's oeuvre was whittled away from the sort of 650 works that were included at around the time of the Second World War down to about a um, little more than 250 by the early 1980s. And this is one of the casualties. And I think uh, one of the reasons I would like to have it at home is because I'm a closet believer in this picture and I would like to really study it and see if I can find any evidence that I can persuade the world that it is in fact by Rembrandt. Because I think it's such an interesting case of how subjective our taste is in art, that a picture can be so celebrated for so long and then suddenly all but forgotten about because somebody said it's not by this particular artist. Hmm. Has it been forgotten about? I, um, I say that only because it, it's always felt to me like a, like a, you know, a famous image. The, everybody knows the man with the golden helmet, you know, um, and the fact that, whether it's by Rembrandt or not, actually. It, 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 the interesting thing is that it's it's this image that has always broken through the barrier and, and become memorable and, and had this impact, this enormous impact. 
Um, I mean, in the sense, if you go to the Grimaldi Gallery now, it's tucked around a corner in a back, not a, quite a back room, but it's you know, it's not the front and centre that it used to be, and I think that's rather interesting. Yeah. I, I, what can I say about the uh, the attribution? There's something about it that, to me, is a little bit unrembrandty, and it's purely to do with the guy's face, that the way that he looks down. There's almost um, a kind of reality to it that is unrembrandty, perhaps in tone. I don't know. Um, what is a hundred percent Rembrandty is, you know, the darkness, the sense of introspection, and of course, this wonderful thing of of, of mixing up the ages. Because I mean, this would be a, would have been a contemporary of Rembrandt's, even if he didn't paint it, it would have been somebody of his era. And yet he's made him out to be something else by sticking this gold helmet on and the, you know, the, the metal um, guard around his neck. So he's dressed up in this costume of someone else. Um, and I guess um, it would be a soldier or the god Mars or something like that. You know, the implications are that it's some bellicose hero of humanity. And yet, you know, you've got this rather sad old man instead looking out from under the helmet. So he's dressed for war, but his physiognomy is a physiognomy of human sadness. And that fight, you know, between the costume and the person is what you get often in Rembrandt, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you get it in a lot of the self-portraits. Yeah. It's one of the things that's so wonderful about his art. I mean, there's, there's two forces tugging away at, in opposite directions. Yeah. I have a suspicion that, that within the decade, I think this picture will start to be reassessed, actually. Mm. Um, it's very interesting because the model who appears in this picture uh, is also in two other works that were considered Rembrandt, one in the Louvre and one in the Moritz House, of about the 1650s, which is when this picture was painted, and they too were downgraded. So, uh, But questions are now being asked about those, particularly the one in the Morris House, which has um, recently begun a long uh, technical examination of their picture. So you can begin to see that if, if people now accept that, once again, Rembrandt did in fact paint this model, this sitter, then perhaps we should reassess the one in, in Berlin. It's interesting mm. that it was, it, it was really downgraded on the basis in the 1980s of X-rays, and it was a moment in art history, which I call X-rayitis, when they began to start X-raying paintings and thought, despite not having X-rayed Rembrandt's entire earth, that they could make conclusions based on, on what they saw beneath the paint layers rather than on the paint surface itself. Um, but now that we're beginning to X-ray so many more of Rembrandt's pictures, that what looked unusual in an X-ray of, say, only 50 Rembrandt paintings in the 1980s, you can now find more consistencies across this whole earth. So I'd like to place a little bet with you, Waldy, if we're still doing this podcast in 10 years' time, that um, before then, the Rembrandt attribution for this painting might yet be resuscitated. Do you know what? I'm not going to take that bet because I, I trust you to be right there. I think you could well be right. There is obviously that whole thing of, of getting rid of half of an artist's earth. You know, they did it to Bosch, they did it to Giorgione, they did it to Rembrandt brand it's damned annoying um, and you feel that it's based on on a very subjective science or a very subjective kind of knowledge and somehow not the real thing so i'm i'm, I'm with you in general and therefore i'm going to be with you on this so i'm not taking that bet yeah. and it's uh, above all it's a great picture uh, whoever did it but I mean, yes yes i'm sure you're right actually good now i've as always i'm grabbing you by the belt and I am tugging you forwards into the modern world. And so um, I've got a picture by Umberto Boccioni, who is probably the greatest of the futurists, the Italian futurists. There were these pioneering Italian painters just before the First World War. Um, they painted art that really tried to capture the movement, the atmosphere, the sizzle and speed of the modern city. And some of the greatest futurist paintings really do do that. They really give you a kind of feel of how, as the, as the 19th century ended and the 20th started, how people looking up thought to themselves, wow, look what we've got ahead of us. Fast trains, fast cars, a fast life. Uh, and they started to paint these great futurist pictures. But what makes this one particularly interesting, and it hangs in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, is that it's of a footballer. So it's called dynamism of a football player. Now, there's very little sport in art um, for reasons that we maybe even touched on last week when we both of us admitted we're lousy at sport. It's as if there's a divide between sport and art that doesn't pop up very often. There are very few paintings of, of footballers, uh, which is surprising when you think that there's so many paintings of trees and cities and people and clowns. And why aren't there more paintings of sport? I don't know. But this 
brilliant Italian painter um, has given us one. And I said, it's called dynamism of a football player, but I think most people looking at it would have trouble seeing a football player in there. It's a kind of whirl of shapes and buzzing cubistic planes. And it, it, it's, it's, it looks more like, you know, when Tom and Jerry um, have a fight in those Warner Brother cartoons <laughs> and suddenly they turn into a kind of ball of action with ears, fists, feet all sticking out and whirling around. It's a bit like that. Uh, but I think you can just about work out a leg in the middle and a foot and, uh, and you get a sort of sense perhaps of, uh, of a ball. So it's wonderful. It's, it's nothing to do with football, really. Um, and I know I'm, I'm a mad football fan like you are. You know, you're, you're Glasgow Rangers. I'm, I'm Reading FC. You know, I'm Reading through and through. Um, but this, it hasn't really got a feel of football about it, but it's got the feeling of the energy, the action, the brilliance of a great moment in football. Um, I think so. So I love it because it captures that spirit, because uh, it's about football um, and because it's a futurist painting and I love the futurists. Yeah, I really love this picture, actually. I think I have even enjoyed it in the Museum of Modern Art um, because I have, I've been there just once, but I have been there, Weldy. Um, so this is a lovely choice. In fact, you you make a very good point about sporting art and particularly football, which is, I think is sort of looked down upon as not a high subject for art to represent. But actually one of mm. my favourite pictures, I'm, I'm mad keen on a, a modern Scottish artist called William Gear. One of his best pictures is of a football match painted in the 1950s. And it's really exciting. And I think um, the movement of football as an action is a great thing for artists to try and capture. A little bit like Stubbs striving to get the speed of a, a racehorse in a race. It's a difficult thing to pull off, but uh, but this picture has done it triumphantly. Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? I mean, there are boxing pictures in America, you know, the great George Bellows pictures, and there's a few things here and there, but really very little. I mean, what, you know, there, why are there no cricket paintings in Britain, great cricket paintings? Why aren't there great rugby paintings? I mean, there aren't even great rowing paintings. There's, there's some rowing paintings, you know, of people enjoying rowing as a, as a thing to do in Impressionist France, going up and down the Seine boating as a ledger activity, but not like proper rowing, you know, where one team's racing another, not much of that. There's a bit of horse racing, I suppose, because the rich like to paint their horses, uh, the winning horses. But it's a, I think it's a, it's a lack. It's a lack in art, the sport. And I mean, I would love it if, if a great artist today would paint a picture of Reading FC, you know, or you or you, you will get someone up there in Scotland to paint Rangers, your team, you know. That would be great, <laughs> wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be exciting if real art got involved instead of... I mean, the only time you see art in, in football is, is those dreadful statues we've yeah. had a pop-out before that they put outside <laughs> the buildings. It needs to change, doesn't it, Bendy? I think two of our five ter most terrible statues in Britain were, were outside football crowds, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, on that depressing but also optimistic thought that one day we may get uh, great art about football, I'm going to say goodbye, but but just for one final word for the mums out there. Thank you again, mums. Bye-bye and thank you, thank you, thank you, mums. Yes, thank you, mums, and cheerio from me. Waldy and Bendy.